You know, this weekend I was out and about doing my thing. What's that thing? Well, uh, Saturday it was destroying a desk all day that I couldn't fit out of a doorway. And I know what you're saying. The desk got in the room. There has to be a way to take it apart and get it out of the room. Didn't you put this desk together? Well, first, to answer that question, no. I did not put the desk together. The previous owner, a nice man, said, hey, do you want a desk? I did need a desk. So I said, sure, leave the desk. What he failed to mention was that the desk was built by the fucking Amish or something and carved out of a solid tree stump. I don't know where the joints on this bitch were because all I'm familiar with is how to assemble stuff made from Ikea where if I just give it a swift kick, the entire thing will implode. So that leads me to the preachy part of this cold open. If you buy a house, I have a bit of advice for you. It goes as follows. If they're leaving it, there's a reason they're leaving it. And that applies to everything. Desks, televisions, safes, pool tables. Don't take the pool table. You're not going to want it. Now, I don't have kids. You should not take my advice about parenting. But I'm pretty confident that if you were to ask Carter Rodriguez from the chase down, do you want me to, I'll give you a brand new pool table, he would tell me to go fuck myself. I know, it sounds romantic, not me fucking myself. I mean, the concept of a pool table. I think all of us envision this future where we get real good at pool, and then our child is in a biker bar later on, and he gambles away a bunch of his money, and we come in like the white-collar heroes that we are, and we throw a couple games, but then we pull out our special pool cue with its own name, and then we hustle these bikers right back, taking back our money and the honor of our adopted son who came from a rough part of Philadelphia and everybody wins, but that's not how it will play out. It is not. Instead, you will be shelling out money to 1-800-GOT-JUNK as they take a chainsaw to a pool table in the middle of your house, getting shards of woods all throughout the carpet. And you're thinking this was fucking avoidable. This could have been somebody else's problem. And I was faced with the dilemma of being too stupid or too incompetent to figure out how to disassemble this gigantic solid wood desk. I removed every screw. I inspected it. I flipped it over. I put it on its side. I shook it. I wiggled it. I did everything I could short of bringing in somebody who's a real man to take a look at it. But eventually, my wife and I got to the point where we decided this could stretch into multiple weeks by the time we get anybody to come over here who's an actual man of the house to look at this thing. So let's take the coward's way out. I got a wrecking bar and a hammer. And I smashed that bitch to smithereens. Now, if I find out later that on the secondary market, I could have sold that solid wood desk for hundreds of dollars, I'll regret it. But in the moment, following a loss to the Miami Heat, it felt pretty good to destroy something. Now, after demolishing this desk, like a goddamn real man would, I took my fat self to the gym and got on a Stairmaster like a middle-aged woman would because as my athletic prime leaves me behind and I careen towards middle-aged, if genetics holds consistent, that is about the same time that my dad started to push three bills. So I'm trying to avoid dying an early death from heart failure, something that apparently, after listening to some shows on Friday, I realized has a link to daylight savings time, strangely enough, but let's not get off on that tangent. Trying not to be the fat bastard that I am, I said, hey, go to the gym, get on the Stairmaster next to the other 80-year-old ladies, throw on a podcast, an NBA podcast, and enjoy the weekend. Put the Miami game behind you. So that I did. I picked one of the regular Saturday podcasts hosted by Andrew Schlecht and Alex Spears, on the Athletic NBA Show podcast feed, they drop a podcast every Saturday, and sometimes you just want the most fresh, 
topical content you can find. I put it on, and what did I hear? Did you know that Al Horford is the best corner three-point shooter in the NBA this year? Hey, 15 players in the league are shooting two or more corner threes per game, and Horford is the best, shooting 49% from the corners this season. It's pretty amazing. Uh, The worst, a former Celtic, a current Hornet, Terry Rozier, is only shooting 30% from the corners and Mm. taking two or more per game. Pretty bad. Pretty bad indeed. In fact, worse than Isaac Okoro, who also qualifies for that stat, takes two attempts a game, shoots 36% on corner threes. But I knew the moment Mr. Schlecht brought up that statistic that Terry Rozier was going to do some damage against the Cavaliers today, and that he did. 27 points, perfect on corner threes. Two for two. All four of his three-point makes were from the sides, essentially. And 27 points, incredible game for him, shooting 52-44 splits, but not enough, and definitely not enough to overcome eight turnovers by Terry Rozier in a terrible fourth quarter, one in which he went 0 for 3 from the floor as the Cavaliers destroyed the Hornets in the fourth quarter, 33-19, behind 10 points of Evan Mobley, behind some great defense, breakouts from Donovan Mitchell, some huge buckets, and some timely contributions from a one Karis LeVert. We'll get into all of that on this episode of the Fear the Fro podcast. Two hands. That'll bring the house down. Three on the way. Welcome to Fear the Fro, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is, my favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. Bob Schmidt, your voice of Fox Sports Radio, lifelong Cavs host. Not, Not lifelong Cav host, no. This podcast has only been going two short years. Lifelong Cavs fan. I'm not a professional. The Cavaliers win tonight, 114-108 over the Charlotte Hornets, heading into a week in which we get the Hornets yet again on Tuesday night before a big matchup with the Philadelphia 76ers, one which could have implications on the third seed. Philadelphia's rolling. They won yet again against the Washington Wizards, so maybe we can't run them down, but things are looking pretty good for holding off the New York Knicks. At the time I'm taping this, it looks like they're going to win, so let's just presume that's the case. And then the Cavaliers would have a a two-and-a-half game lead over the New York Knicks with 12 games left to play. So the Knicks' next four games look fairly difficult. They're in Portland on Tuesday. They take on the Nuggets at home on Saturday. Next Monday, they get the Timberwolves, and then they're on the road taking on the Heat. But those four opponents, all reasonably good teams, the Nuggets, the Blazers, the Timberwolves, the Heat, the Knicks are 4-1 and one against those squads. They have defeated the Nuggets in their only matchup. They've defeated the Heat twice this season. They've defeated the Timberwolves. The only one of those squads they have lost to is the Trailblazers in an overtime victory back in November for Portland. But forget the Knicks. Let's talk Cavs. Tonight was a game in which everybody expected to win. This was a Hornets team which was without several of their players. Mark Williams, Ball, Kelly Oubre, who's been great. In the month of March, I know a lot of people have fun disparaging Kelly Oubre, myself included, but he has been blistering this month in six games, averaging 25 points, seven rebounds, and shooting 45-42 splits, 97% from the line. That's a true shooting percentage of over 60%. The only Cavalier doing that this month thus far has been Darius Garland. So just to put in context, 
the efficiency Ubre has shown lately, it has been phenomenal. And in a year where he's expiring, it makes you wonder if he hadn't had that untimely injury, what might he have fetched? But that's a regrettable situation for the Hornets. We have our own situation with the Kevin Love scenario and the fact that tonight, Dean Wade couldn't even get on the floor in a game in which we didn't have Jared Allen and Evan Mobley was in foul trouble. Instead, we got Robin Lopez, who gave us some high highs, a couple of blocks, and some incredibly low lows as he got his feet glued to the floor as the Hornets got out in transition. 16 fast break points in the first half for the Hornets to zero for the Cavaliers. And seeing Robin Lopez have to make quick decisions and move rapidly laterally, well, let's just say it's not pretty. He had a better second shift in the second quarter. I'll say that. That's not saying much, though, because in any situation where we have to rely on Robin Lopez for extended periods of time, I don't love it. And I know the announcers praised him and they said, oh, he's given us good minutes. I couldn't have felt more differently. Robin Lopez came in in the first quarter and the Hornets went on a 10-0 run. Robin Lopez came in in the second quarter and the Hornets went on a 7-0 run. I'm not saying it's all his fault because it certainly wasn't. The Cavaliers had some just horrific turnovers early on in that game. And after starting the game three for three, Donovan Mitchell missed his next six attempts. By halftime, what looked like it might be one of the better games of the season for Donovan Mitchell had cooled off considerably. But as it relates to Lopez, there's just a level of discomfort I have when I watch him out there and we're relying on him as the back line because he's simply not fast enough and he's a big enough physical presence that if there is contact nine times out of ten, I worry that there's going to be a whistle. Considering some of the whistles guys like Mobley get and Okoro get who can test shots pretty straight up, to see Robin Lopez and the damage he can do with just the minimal amount of contact, I don't like the idea of giving him huge runs on the floor. And I I have to think, if JB's logic was anything tonight, maybe it was simply that Dean Wade didn't play because Nick Richards is an imposing body, a guy who can get on the glass. That's two games against the Cavs this season where he gave double-digit rebounds. And the first one he did in a backup role. Now, he had to play 30 minutes because Mason Plumley was getting cooked by the fro. But still, this is a guy who has a knack for getting offensive rebounds, for pulling in defensive rebounds. And perhaps JB just wanted a little bit bigger of a body and Robin Lopez to try to counteract that. But certainly troubling shortly after letting go Kevin Love with the understanding that Dean is the one who supplanted him in the lineup. And now Dean is out of the rotation entirely. Now, JB was questioned and he had this to offer about Lopez playing extended minutes. He didn't really address the Dean situation. He just explained his logic with Lopez, and this is what he had to say. Uh, Just trying to continue to put some size out there. Um, You know, obviously with Jarrett being out, um, you know, we are limited uh, with size, and I thought, you know, Rolo was good. I thought he played hard. He got some uh, extra opportunities, you know, got some tips, those types of things. Uh, He does a great job of protecting the paint. Um, So, you know, again, everybody's going to be called upon and being able to get everybody some game reps is only going to help us and benefit us long-term. So that was what JB had to say on Rolo, but I don't know why I'm starting this by criticizing JB for playing Rolo because the fact is we won the game and he had to play somebody. And I'm curious what the situation with Dean is going to be moving forward, but that's not the story for tonight. The story for tonight is essentially three to four guys on this roster who showed up big at different points of the game. The first, right out of the gate, Donovan Mitchell, who ripped off seven points 
in the first quarter, began three for three, and I alluded to he missed the next six, six shots over the course of the second quarter, early third quarter before he managed to break that negative streak. But the fourth quarter was monstrous for Donovan Mitchell, who contributed 10 of his 16 points in the final period and went four for five from the floor. So he bookended what was a big fat Donovan turd in the middle where his shots just weren't falling, but he was aggressive. He forced a lot of shots in the mid range, got to the lane. He made one of those scoop the ball over shots from a very unorthodox spot on the floor for him. Normally he pulls that right coming straight down the paint, but he did it kind of from the side, almost coming in from the elbow. And overall, Donovan Mitchell, the scoring in the first and the fourth was big, but equally huge was of those eight turnovers from Terry Rozier. Donovan Mitchell jumped one to Hayward. He scooped up another, which he threw ahead to Levert, which got tossed back for an and one foul to Evan Mobley. He was big in the fourth quarter in terms of ball hawking those passing lanes. And those two quarters helped make up for the middle. Now, the Cavs weren't without offense after Donovan went cold because if the first quarter was a story of Donovan Mitchell starting out hot, the second quarter was the story of Darius Garland imposing his will. 13 of Darius Garland's points came in the second period when he took eight shots. He was aggressive. He was forcing the action. He also did a lot of work in helping the Cavs dig out of the hole that they had exiting that first quarter because at the end of the first quarter, the Cavs were down 10 and it could have been more if not for a buzzer beater by Karis Levert, a three-pointer at the buzzer, which cut it to just 10 points. And from there, Darius Garland started to dictate the flow of the action more, which was very much needed because as I alluded to earlier, it was 16 to nothing in terms of fast break points at halftime. And when the game concluded, it was only 19 to 12. So the second half went much more favorably for the Cavs as they outscored the Hornets in fast break points, 12 to three. And that was big in changing the momentum of this game because for all that Donovan Mitchell did in the first quarter, by the end of the first, things had gotten away from the Cavs largely because P.J. Washington could not miss. He had a 12-point first quarter in which he went a perfect 5-for-5, and that came amongst the stretch of Hornets basketball where they ripped off a 12-0 run. I mean, it went bad. Lopez came in, and 10 of those 12 points came where he was out there. There was turnovers everywhere. Levert was turning it over. Lopez had a turnover. Mobley had a couple early fouls, so he wasn't even in the game. But Osman with a big three, Levert with a buzzer beater three, and the Cavs found themselves down 10 points. But from the start of the second quarter, I felt a lot more comfortable because Darius Garland, while Mitchell started to drop off, Garland started to impose his will. And this looked like it would be a DG game because he wasn't settling for outside looks. He was getting into the lane. He was collapsing the defense. He was finding guys. It was the way he was playing, which was giving me confidence. The frequent runouts, the turnovers, they started to slow. It felt a lot more like the pace you wanted to see because we know the Hornets, they're an up-tempo team. And that's no surprise. They don't have a lot of half-court creators, especially with Oubre and LaMelo out. So they're going to be a team that has to get some cheapy buckets on you by getting out and running. And they did that in the first quarter. They're one of the leading pace teams in the NBA, but the Cavs slowed down the turnovers, only two turnovers in the second quarter. So things started to shift back their way in terms of preventing all those runouts. And Rozier, he turned the ball over four times just by himself in the second quarter. So we cut the lead to three late in the second quarter, and Evan Mobley picks up his third personal 
foul. Just a cheapy little nothing on Nick Richards. That uh, It may very well have been a foul, but my frustration was the level of contact Evan Mobley was taking. You want to call him for ticky-tack fouls, like the one he got on Gordon Hayward trying to contest straight up? Fine. Maybe you're going to say that there was enough body contact down low. I don't know. Regardless, it's not so much that I was upset about the foul calls they were calling on Evan. It was that on the other end, they were just swallowing their whistles and letting him get mugged. Evan is so deft with the pump fake, but there are times where I think, why even use it? You know what? Just hurl yourself into people because they're not giving you contact when you manage to get these guys to bite and you jump into them. They're just making you play through it, and you're having to take these awkward shots that end up not falling. And I think that was reflected by and large, while his stats, his overall stats were good, 18 points, nine boards. He was, again, six for 13, and I think a lot of that was due to the shots he was taking, he was expecting to get a whistle, and he got nothing. And just to compound what was a problem, similar with the Miami Heat, we saw from these defensive juggernauts, these Bam Adebayos, Draymond Greens, where they're allowed to use their physicality because of whatever reputation they've built up on the defensive end, that Evan Mobley is a fantastic defensive player. I want to see him stretching the legality of the moves he makes and forcing these whistles from officials because there are times where I think Evan playing so cleanly most of the games makes these officials feel a little bit more comfortable knowing, well, we can tag him for these 50-50 calls here and he'll still be in the game at the end. Nobody wants to be the ref who fouls out one of the star players in the second quarter. But if Evan Mobley played with the kind of aggression, I mean, Bam Adebayo nearly scooped out our poor fro's eyeball, swung wildly, didn't make any contact with the ball, and it was still just a common foul, which, fine, whatever, I don't think he had any ill intent, but the fact of the matter is, that swing was reckless as fuck, and I've seen a lot less called a lot worse in terms of flagrance over the course of this season. I guess the point I'm trying to make, I'm, it's getting lost in the weeds here, but there's a certain level of aggression if you play with where some of the 50-50 calls... They just get ignored by officials. Think about every time we watch Bam set screens in those Cavs games where just ever so subtly, he just extends his hands into the back of whoever he's back screening. Those are the types of things you absolutely could get away with because the refs are not going to burn your six fouls on those ticky-tack, almost-nothing things, but they give you a slight advantage, and Evan Mobley is already a terror rolling to the rim. It's the whole Draymond Green theory about, well, he gets a technical early so that the refs let him play more physically throughout because they don't want to remove him from the game. I don't want Evans six. If he ends up with five fouls in an evening, I don't want those five fouls to be on questionable calls. I want him to earn every single one of them. Push the envelope. So to get back to basketball at that point in the game, Evans third foul. The Cavaliers were trailing by just three points. In comes Lopez. The Hornets ripped off seven straight, so at halftime, the Cavs go into halftime trailing by seven. The third quarter really wasn't all that thrilling. It was a lot of the Cavs scoring and a lot of the Hornets scoring. It felt like we were lacking defensive stops, but unfortunately, with about four minutes left in the third, the Cavs let the Hornets rip off a 10-1 run, and they expanded the lead to 16 points. Ricky Rubio finally had a few productive possessions to close out the third, and the Cavs Entered the fourth quarter trailing by eight, and from there, it was all Cleveland. Two men stepped up in the fourth quarter. Evan Mobley and Donovan Mitchell combined to go seven of nine from the floor. They got to the free throw line nine times. Now, Evan Mobley, 
left some points on the line, but seven free throws in one quarter is huge for a man who just moments ago in this podcast I was bitching about couldn't get whistles. Well, in the fourth quarter, not only was he perfect from the floor, not only did he play all 12 minutes alongside Karis Levert, the other guy who played the entirety of the fourth quarter, but he scored 10 points and had his most effective stretch of basketball on both ends. He was breaking stuff up. JB talked about the change in defensive strategy because Rozier was getting off in the third quarter. So he used Mobley a lot more late in the game to throw different looks at Rozier. And I think that was rewarded because Terry went 0 for 3 in the fourth quarter and had another three turnovers. The ends of these halves did not work out for Scary Terry. And Evan was a huge part of that. Now, the most beautiful play for Evan, I think, in this entire game was we saw throughout the first half, Evan Mobley has no hesitance to throw the ball to the corner. And it does not matter. Doesn't matter that Okoro didn't have a point in the first half. It doesn't matter if guys are shanking three-point looks. Evan Mobley will make the correct play again and again. If he comes down the lane and they collapse, if they leave a man on the corner, be it Lamar, be it Okoro, be it whoever, he's going to give them the ball. And late in the game, when he got the ball on the high post and started to roll through the lane, he was able to use an up fake to threat of throwing it to the baseline to get PJ to give you the little starfish jump where he just flailed all of his appendages at once and Evan went right around him and dunked the ball. And it was a play that was set up because Evan made the right play so many times in the first half despite guys not converting the passes. And the rest of his team, pretty woeful. Six for 16 from the floor in the fourth quarter and another five turnovers to zero from the Cavs. A fourth quarter with zero turnovers is magical anytime they do it, but especially when we needed all of those points to dig out of what would have been a very embarrassing loss. So now the Cavs are positioned to be able to, to, and it is final, by the way, the Knicks did defeat the Lakers. The Cavs are positioned to be able to head into this next game on Tuesday against the Hornets with a three-game lead over the New York Knicks. They also hold a three-game lead over the Brooklyn Nets, who have played two less games than the Knicks. So they actually would be the Cavaliers' first-round opponent if the season ended today. And interestingly enough, the Milwaukee Bucks, with their loss, they are just a game and a half up on the Boston Celtics. So there is a scenario here in which Cleveland could take on either the Nets or the Knicks in the first round. And then, if Boston's able to leapfrog Milwaukee we could see a Celtics-Cavs second-round matchup, which I think most of us find favorable to one where you have to deal with Giannis or Embiid. But I will say this, I don't expect the Nets to hold off the Knicks in large part because the Nets have a pretty difficult schedule and they have to face the Cavaliers twice. They have a back-to-back set coming up towards the end of March here. Both of them are at home, and I know the Cavs haven't seen this iteration of the Nets, but with games on the horizon against the Kings, the Nuggets, a back-to-back against the Cavs, and then the Heat. It's a tough stretch for the Nets here, and I think it's a lot to ask for them to hold off the Knicks. Now, if they can get through this next stretch of games and they still lead the Knicks, well then, yeah, it starts to look like much more of a cakewalk. They get the Rockets, the Jazz, the Pistons, the Magic a couple of times, but the toughness of their remaining schedule is definitely front-loaded. So on to the next game, on to the next Hornets game. Cavaliers with their 16-point comeback tonight, the 14th win of the season, second only to those Brooklyn Nets who have 15 when trailing by double digits. So 
Look at that. A team with a great fourth quarter net rating, a team with a ton of overtime victories, a team with the second most comebacks from double digits. For all of us who began this season at different stretches, opining about the difficulties of closing out games, I certainly am not suggesting we don't get some uneven stretches of basketball, but I think the full season context is painting a very different picture. Enjoy your Monday. Get your work out of the way. Be productive. Don't be some lazy asshole listening to podcasts all day because by Thursday and Friday, we need to be in mail-it-in mode for the NCAA tournament. So I'm stacking these on the front. I'm getting them in now for the Hornets, for the Sixers, and then I'm going to ghost at the end of the week. And fortunately, the Cavs schedule is being cooperative in that regard. So thank you to all of you who have joined me for the Fear the Fro podcast. Once again, I'm Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, Dan Patrick. Colin Cowherd, Fox Sports 1350, The Gambler, and Akron, amongst others. So leave me a review. Leave me a rating. Help me get up the algorithm so more people see me so I can put together more and better shows. And by the fourth season, it'll look like Evan Mobley's fourth quarter and people will say, holy shit, look at that talent on display. More of the Fear the Fro pod on the way. Thank you. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.